Imagine you're an FBI agent. A major terrorist attack has just happened on your watch. And you believe that you and your team could have stopped it if you hadn't been stalled again and again by red tape. Would you keep your mouth shut and hope it doesn't happen again? Or would you speak out and criticize the protocols of a grieving nation? Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. Today, we're telling the story of the Minneapolis FBI agents who, in August 2001, predicted a major terrorist attack and raced against the clock to try and stop it. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. On the morning of August 15, 2001, the FBI field office in Minneapolis, Minnesota got a call. On the other line was a concerned flight instructor, an administrator at the nearby Pan Am International Flight Academy. He was calling the local FBI office because he and several of his colleagues felt obligated to inform the Bureau about a student of theirs who seemed suspicious. The flight school specialized in training people to fly Boeing 747 jets. So most of their students were junior pilots who were sponsored by commercial airlines or experienced pilots on refresher courses. In other words, they were pros. This student, a 31-year-old man named Zacharias Musawi, didn't fit that profile. Coming from the United Kingdom, he had registered at the school with a French passport and paid 8,300 US dollars in cash for his training. The all-cash payment was a little unusual, but not something that rang alarm bells. What concerned the instructors was that Musawi had very little flying experience, didn't have a pilot's license, and wasn't affiliated with any airline. Musawi claimed that he just wanted to learn to fly the 747s as an ego boost thing. The school had seen a very small handful of wealthy enthusiasts come through over the years. But unlike them, Musawi didn't actually seem all that interested in planes. And he didn't act like he came from a lot of wealth. Musawi focused almost exclusively on takeoff and landing. He wasn't bothered about actually flying the plane. 
He also asked a number of questions about the aircraft's doors and seemed surprised to learn they couldn't be opened in flight. It just all seemed really weird and suspicious to his instructors. Up to this point, Musawi had only completed a few days of classroom work. The next day, he was scheduled for his first session in the flight simulator. The team at Pan Am Academy decided that they should at least alert the FBI before he was able to get behind the controls of the popular passenger jet. Maybe they were being overly cautious, but better safe than sorry. The case was immediately assigned to Special Agent Harry Samet. Two years into his FBI career, Harry Samet was on the Minneapolis field office's Joint Terrorism Task Force, a collaborative initiative between various U.S. intelligence and law enforcement agencies. Prior to joining the FBI, however, he'd spent a decade specializing in aviation-related intelligence. He was also an experienced aviator. When Harry heard about Masawi, he too was surprised the young man had chosen Boeing 747s. Why would someone with a lot of cash and very little interest in aviation want to learn to fly what was essentially a bus with wings? Anyone interested in a joyride would pick a more fun plane. Sensing something was off, Harry opened an intelligence investigation into Masawi and got straight to work. He started by running searches on Masawi's name, but nothing concrete came up. So he reached out to the FBI's legal attaches in both London and Paris to see if they had any information. But it was already the end of the workday in Europe, so he knew he'd have to wait to hear from them. Finally, one of his colleagues came up with something. Senior Special Agent John Weiss was an Immigration and Naturalization Service, or INS, agent on his Joint Terrorism Task Force team. John had discovered that Musawi had overstayed his U.S. visa by several months, and his visa also didn't allow for either working or studying. By attending the flight school, he'd broken the law. The terms of his visa dictated that he had to be arrested and deported without any room for appeal. And it had to happen quickly. The INS wanted cases like this deported within seven to ten days of arrest. If the FBI didn't have a legal reason to either surveil or hold Musawi for longer, he'd be back in Europe within a couple of weeks. This meant that Harry had only days to investigate. The clock was ticking. Determined to get all the information he could before Musawi knew he was in trouble, Harry decided to interview the flight instructor who'd worked directly with Musawi for the last couple days. The flight instructor said that what concerned him just as much as Musawi's unexpected interest in the 747s was his demeanor. The Frenchman had been cheerful until it came to questions about himself. When asked what he did, he answered vaguely that he ran an import-export business before quickly changing the subject. And when he was asked about his religion during a friendly chat, he became guarded and hostile, declaring, I am nothing. After that, he was uninterested in small talk and mostly just asked when he would get to use the flight simulator. After wrapping up the interview with the flight instructor, Harry was even more concerned than before. He had a hunch that Musawi was planning a hijacking, 
a popular form of terrorism since the 1970s. For the last two years, U.S. intelligence had been on high alert for attacks by Islamist extremist groups, especially from Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda network. Could Musawi be involved with them? Harry was torn. On the one hand, they still didn't know that much about the guy. If they put him under surveillance for a few days, they might learn a lot more about him, who he was connected to, and what he was really doing. On the other hand, Musawi's first lesson at the controls of the 747 simulator was scheduled for that evening. Harry knew there was a huge difference between studying flight manuals and actually using the levers and dials in a cockpit. Once Musawi learned how to fly in a simulator, it would be much easier for him to fly a real plane. Harry couldn't let that happen. And so, around 5 p.m. on Thursday, August 16th, 2001, the day after he'd got the call from the flight school, Harry led a four-man team to stake out Musawi's hotel. Knowing that Musawi had his simulator lesson at 6 p.m., they waited for him to come out. Within a few minutes, Musawi and another man walked out of the building. Intercepting them, Harry and John Weiss introduced themselves. They said they were there about Musawi's immigration status. The student handed over his passport wallet, angrily protesting that he was in the U.S. legally. As the agents flipped through the passport, they found a couple more suspicious things. First, they noted stamps, indicating that he'd spent two months in Pakistan at the end of the previous year and the beginning of this one, shortly before coming to the U.S. An alarm went off in Harry's head. Since the Soviet-Afghan war in the 1980s, extremist militants had been going to Afghanistan to train with groups like Al-Qaeda. They usually flew in and out of Pakistan, entering Afghanistan unofficially in order to avoid passport stamps. The agents also found a receipt for a $32,000 cash deposit from his arrival in the U.S. Harry had to wonder where a guy who didn't seem especially wealthy had come into that much cash. While two agents stayed in the parking lot with Musawi's friend, Harry and John accompanied Musawi to his room. There, he showed them a paper confirming that he'd applied to extend his visa to the U.S., but it was evident he had received no confirmation that his visa had been extended. John, as the INS agent, informed Musawi that they were going to have to arrest him. Musawi was livid. He insisted they would have to let him go to the very expensive flying lessons he had already paid for. As John handcuffed Musawi, Harry looked around the messy hotel room, which was clearly being shared with the man outside. It looked like Musawi had brought his whole life with him. When Harry asked for permission to search his belongings, Musawi vehemently refused. While Musawi was taken into custody, Harry decided to stay behind and interview his roommate. The man's name was Hussein Al-Attas, and he was a Yemeni student at the University of Oklahoma. He and Musawi had met at a mosque near the university, while Musawi had been studying at a flight school nearby. Though they didn't know each other well, they'd become roommates about a month prior. 
When Musawi had dropped out of his Oklahoma flight school and Alatas hadn't started the school year yet, Alatas had offered to drive his roommate up to Minnesota for the week to attend his lessons at the Pan Am Academy. From Al-Atas, Harry learned that Musawi was in fact a devout Muslim. Some members of the mosque in Oklahoma found him to be hardline and extremist in his views. But the most interesting thing to come out of the Al-Atas interview was that Musawi had suggested that he didn't like people who weren't Muslim. In fact, Al-Atas said that he may have talked about wanting to kill those who harm Muslims. Harry didn't know how much he could trust this man, but that remark alone set alarm bells ringing again. Unlike Musawi, Al-Atas let the agents search his belongings. When Harry found boxing gloves and shin guards, Al-Atas said those were Musawi's idea. Musawi had apparently suggested that they learn martial arts. He claimed it was for self-defense, since Musawi didn't like living in a non-Muslim country. Elsewhere in the room, Harry found a half-finished Pakistan visa application and an envelope containing an Arabic document that Al-Atas claimed was his will. Thus far, everything they'd learned about Musawi seemed suspicious. Someone who didn't care about and had no experience with airplanes had shown up with a ton of unexplained cash, wanting to learn to fly the most boring and most automated commercial jet. He was secretive and hostile and apparently adhered to a violent extremist ideology espoused by a terrorist group that U.S. intelligence knew was planning to attack Americans. Harry strongly suspected that Musawi was up to something. Now he just had to figure out what. Coming up, Harry's investigation is stymied by the FBI's bureaucracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. On the evening of August 16, 2001, FBI Special Agent Harry Samet sat down with his colleague, INS Agent John Weiss, to formally interview Zacharias Musawi. Not only had Musawi overstayed his visa, but Harry felt confident from everything they'd learned that Musawi was up to something suspicious and that his roommate, Al Atas, could be a co-conspirator. From the outset, Musawi was angry and combative, unwilling to answer questions. But the agents were patient, not wanting to push him too far. Over the course of the evening and the following morning, they eventually managed to get him to tell them a few things of interest. 
For one, he claimed that he'd spent time in Morocco, Saudi Arabia, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Pakistan for work over the last couple years. The reason those stamps didn't show up in his passport was that he'd accidentally run his old passport through the washing machine and had to get a new one. When asked where he'd gone in Pakistan, Musawi insisted that he'd stayed in the city of Karachi the whole time. He got angry when Harry asked if he'd left Pakistan at all during his visit, saying he knew what the agent was accusing him of. When asked what kind of work took him on these business trips, Musawi's answers were vague. He couldn't name any companies he'd worked for, nor any colleagues or business associates. Which left the question of the $32,000 cash. Musawi claimed it was his savings, but he also claimed he hadn't paid taxes in the UK the year before and couldn't account for how he was able to earn and save that much money. Later, he changed tack and claimed that some friends in the UK had given him the money, though he couldn't remember their full names or addresses. While Harry and John were interviewing Musawi, other members of their team discovered that Al-Attas had, in fact, violated the terms of his student visa and arrested him, too. Unlike Musawi, though, he was allowed to post bail. Instead of calling a family member, Al-Attas's call from jail was to an imam at the Oklahoma mosque. In the recorded call, the first thing the imam said was that he'd heard Al-Attas and Musawi had gone to do jihad. Al-Attas hurriedly told the imam not to talk about that right now. It's worth noting that in Islam, jihad usually means a spiritual struggle and not a physical holy war. Still, the agents found Alatas's response suspicious. With all this information and Musawi becoming increasingly belligerent, Harry and John decided to change their interview approach. In a Hail Mary that they hoped would pay off, they accused Musawi of lying. They told him they already knew he was an extremist who intended to use his aviation training for terrorism purposes, and they wanted to know all about his group and the plan. Musawi was surprised by the detailed accusation. Instead of getting angry, though, as Harry knew wrongly accused people usually did, Musawi deflected. Doubling down on his story, he insisted that he was in the US to enjoy the 747 simulator. When he realized the agents didn't believe him, he finally asked for a lawyer. The interview was over. Musawi would be in INS custody until he was deported. That meant that Harry and the Minneapolis FBI team now had just a few days to figure out what he was up to and who he was working with. The first thing Harry wanted to do was search Musawi's laptop, cell phone, and notebooks, which were now being held by the INS. They needed to get a criminal search warrant. And it was here that Harry encountered his first barrier. The FBI at the time was known for its labyrinth layers of red tape. In order to get a criminal search warrant, the case had to be classified as criminal. But it had been opened as an intelligence investigation, and the FBI had strict rules about keeping the two kinds of investigations separate, a policy known as the wall. 
In order to overcome this wall, Harry had to convince the higher-ups that his concerns were valid enough to switch the case over and open a criminal investigation. And that wouldn't be easy. That weekend, August 18th and 19th, 2001, Harry put together a 26-page document laying out all the information they'd gathered so far. He made it clear that he believed Musawi was part of an Islamist extremist group planning a terror attack using a commercial airliner. In order to investigate further and verify this, he needed FBI headquarters to obtain permission for the Minneapolis FBI to contact the U.S. Attorney's Office in order to get a criminal warrant. After he submitted his document on Monday, August 20th, the case was assigned to the Radical Fundamentalist Unit, or the RFU, the team that handled unaffiliated terrorism cases. The RFU would help them prepare the case to submit to the U.S. Attorney's Office. But to Harry's frustration, the case was assigned to Supervisory Special Agent Mike Maltby. The two men had butted heads in the past. Harry felt Mike was more concerned with making sure the paperwork was correct than actually preventing a crime. Mike, on the other hand, complained that the Minneapolis agents were hasty and alarmist, trying to push cases through on hunches without doing their due diligence. Harry knew he had his work cut out. And when Mike's team got back to Harry on Tuesday, August 21st, they had bad news for him. They didn't think he had enough to justify a criminal warrant, much less a criminal investigation. Harry had to demonstrate probable cause of a crime, but right now he had no hard evidence. In their experience, if he submitted the case to the Minneapolis U.S. Attorney's Office as it was, and the application was rejected, it would probably kill the whole investigation. Mike's boss recommended that Harry consult with his office's chief counsel. She might be able to suggest another way of doing things. So Harry walked down the hall to talk to 46-year-old lawyer and special agent Colleen Rowley, who had spent her entire career in the FBI. Upon reviewing the case, Colleen agreed with the RFU team, but she had an idea. Instead of worrying about the criminal side of things, they could apply for a warrant for intelligence cases. It was called a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA warrant. That might just work. And so, the next day, Wednesday, August 22nd, Harry and his supervisor, Greg Jones, scrapped plans for the criminal warrant and told the RFU team that they wanted to apply for an expedited FISA warrant instead. Mike and his supervisor agreed to help, but they reminded the Minneapolis team that FISA warrants had become increasingly difficult to get in recent years. Over the last decade or so, errors on FISA applications had damaged several investigations. These errors had been publicly embarrassing for the reputation-conscious FBI, and it caused the end of at least one agent's career. As a result, the FBI had become paranoid about FISA applications. And to prevent any possible embarrassment, a complex series of checks had been implemented. First, Mike and his boss at RFU would have to sign off on Harry's application. Then it would go up the chain to another department, the National Security Law Unit. 
if they approved it, it would be sent to the Department of Justice's Office of Intelligence Policy and Review. They would then rule whether it could go up once again to the FISA court. If an application made it all the way to court and was denied, all agents involved were heavily criticized. Consequently, each body had extremely high standards. But before Harry could even start this process, he had to actually write the application. And as Mike pointed out, there was one big question he was going to have to answer. What foreign power was Musawi affiliated with? A successful FISA application demonstrated that the person they wanted to surveil was connected to a group that intended to harm the U.S. or Americans. Harry currently had no evidence that Musawi was connected to anyone other than his friend, Al Atas. Luckily, that same day, the FBI's legal attaché in France got back in touch with news. Musawi was believed to have recruited a fellow French Muslim to go fight in Chechnya, a predominantly Muslim region fighting for freedom from Russia. Chechnya had become a popular cause with Islamist extremists, and the militant group based there was run by a known extremist named Ibn al-Khattab, originally from somewhere in the Middle East. Here was a foreign power they could link Musawi to. But Mike immediately shut this lead down. Khattab's group was involved in a civil war. They weren't hostile toward the U.S., and besides, there was no evidence that Musawi had any connection to Katab himself. This foreign power connection would not fly with FISA. At this point, Harry had been investigating Musawi for nearly a week and knew that he was running out of time. Soon, his suspect would be deported back to France and out of Harry's jurisdiction. Finally, a couple days later, on Friday, August 24th, they got some good news. Someone in the CIA passed on a note that they believed Ibn al-Khattab knew Osama bin Laden, the head of the extremist Islamist terror group al-Qaeda. Some people in the CIA even suspected he recruited for bin Laden. If they linked Musawi to Khattab, they could link him to al-Qaeda. Here was the connection Harry and Greg had been looking for. It was tenuous, but it might give them a recognized foreign power for their FISA application. When they spoke to Mike, though, their excitement fizzled once again. He applauded the effort, but the consensus in FBI intelligence at the moment was that Khattab and bin Laden were nothing more than past associates. Despite this blow, Mike suggested that the Minneapolis team write up their formal FISA request and send it over to him anyway. Once he had that, he'd see what he could get done at headquarters. Determined not to waste time, Harry spent his second Saturday in a row writing up documents. Again, he summarized all the information they had, highlighting the foreign power connection to bin Laden and the fact that Musawi was a known extremist who believed it was acceptable to kill non-Muslims. And he emphasized the urgency of the situation given Musawi's impending deportation. They didn't want to risk this dangerous man disappearing once he was back in Europe. Not only was he a risk, but he could also be an important link to other extremists. 
Within hours of Harry submitting the request, Mike called with bad news. He'd read and discussed it with his team, and they just didn't think it was going to make it up the ladder. The Al-Qaeda connection was grasping at straws. The whole document was alarmist, but lacking hard evidence. He really thought the best thing to do would be to regroup and keep investigating until they found something concrete to support the application. Harry and his supervisor, Greg, had had enough. Musawi had already been in custody for a week and a half. Losing his cool, Greg shouted that the document was meant to be alarmist because they were trying to make sure Musawi didn't get control of an airplane and crash it into the World Trade Center or something. With tensions between Mike, Harry, and Greg stretched at breaking point, Mike's boss stepped in and suggested a compromise. He proposed that they run the case by the head attorney in the National Security Law Unit, or NSLU. He'd be able to give them the best assessment of the foreign power situation. While they waited, Mike would prep the application. The next morning, August 28th, Greg and Harry got Mike's revised draft of the FISA application in their inboxes. He'd made some small edits based on his experience of what FISA wanted to see, but he wanted the Minneapolis team to review it and send any notes they had. Harry and Greg read through it and asked Colleen to join them as she'd seen the original document. All three of them were frustrated to see that Mike had toned down the language. For example, Harry had originally described Musawi's martial arts training as preparing himself to fight. Mike had changed the wording to be about self-defense, as Alatas had suggested. Mike had also summarized a few direct quotations. With Colleen and Harry's input, Greg sent back a few revisions, complaining that Mike had softened the argument. Mike used some of their edits, but rejected others, explaining that the higher-ups didn't react well to applications that felt like they were relying on alarmist emotions over facts. But that wasn't the worst part. That evening, the head of the National Security Law Unit informed them that the foreign power argument wasn't strong enough to take their application up the ladder. Considering the evidence, he didn't even think they could claim that Musawi had meaningful connection to Ibn al-Khattab and the Chechen militants. All they had was one guy who had encouraged another guy to go fight in Chechnya. That didn't mean he was a member of Khattab's organization, which meant that any attempt to connect him to bin Laden was moot. Their best chance at a foreign power argument was gone. And without a foreign power, their application was dead. The Minneapolis team couldn't believe it. Without any form of search warrant, the FBI could offer no reason for the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, not to deport Musawi immediately. He would go free before they could properly investigate him. As the INS and the FBI worked out the deportation plans over the next two weeks, Harry continued to chase leads, desperately hoping that something would turn up. In the meantime, it was decided that Harry or one of the other agents would accompany Musawi back to France. 
As soon as they arrived, Musawi would be arrested and searched by the French authorities. The FBI would immediately get access to any important information that turned up. Finally, on Monday, September 10th, 2001, all the details had been worked out and the deportation order was signed. Musawi would be back in France in a matter of days, and the FBI might finally get enough info to continue its investigation. Early on the morning of Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, Zacharias Musawi was sitting in a jail cell awaiting deportation when, at 8.45 a.m., a commercial passenger jet flew into the World Trade Center, followed by another 28 minutes later. Then, at 9.45 a.m., a third jet crashed into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., When the first plane hit, the Minneapolis office was thrown into chaos. Phones were ringing off the hook. The lawyer, Colleen Rowley, was passing the office of a senior agent as the phone began to ring. Knowing he was on another call in the next office, she answered it. At the other end was Mike Maltby from the RFU. Colleen fought to keep the anger from her voice as she told him they needed a search warrant for Musawi's stuff immediately. By the time the third plane hit, the Minneapolis team had obtained permission from headquarters to contact the U.S. Attorney's Office about getting a criminal search warrant. They had the warrant by the end of the day. After weeks of frustration, the only piece of information that had changed was that someone had carried out the kind of terrorist attack they'd feared. The next day, on September 12th, British intelligence finally responded to the FBI legal attaché's request from nearly a month earlier. They had evidence that Musawi had been to Afghanistan the previous winter, where he had trained in an al-Qaeda camp. Too late, the FBI at last had the missing piece of information it needed for the FISA application. In the months after the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, the Minneapolis FBI team grappled with their guilt, anger, and grief. There was no way to know if they could have stopped any of the attacks. And yet, because their efforts had been tied up in red tape, they hadn't even had the chance to find out. When they were finally allowed to comb through all of Musawi's belongings, they were able to identify one of the contacts in his notebooks as the funder of the September 11th hijackers. This connection allowed the U.S. to prosecute Musawi as a co-conspirator in the attacks. Harry Samet forced himself to focus on the investigation and the prosecution of Musawi, rather than on his concerns about the Bureau's failures, but Colleen Rowley's frustration lit a fire under her. Colleen had wanted to be an FBI agent since she was a kid. She had started her career in organized crime and drug trafficking, and over the years had moved into intelligence and law enforcement oversight and training. One of the most important ethical standards that she had taught her students was that they should never mess with the truth in order to help themselves or the FBI. 
That meant no lying, of course, but it also meant not massaging, shading, or skewing facts in any way. Their duty was to the U.S. Constitution and the American people, and that meant they had to be truthful at all times. And so, when the 47-year-old Colleen saw the brand-new FBI director Robert Mueller on television, saying that there was no way the FBI could have foreseen the September 11th attacks, she felt that he could be messing with the facts. Mueller had only become director a week before the attacks, so it was possible he hadn't been told about the Minneapolis investigation. But either way, the American public would eventually find out that the FBI's labyrinth bureaucracy may have led to them missing an opportunity to stop the attacks. And when that information came out, it would undermine the Bureau's credibility, irreparably, perhaps. Colleen tried to pass messages up the chain. Someone had to tell the director that he'd made a mistake. But as the months went by and Mueller continued to repeat the same line, Colleen feared that people further up the hierarchy were trying to protect themselves from blame for the intelligence failure. Finally, in the spring of 2002, Colleen was invited to D.C. for an interview. The team supporting the Senate Intelligence Committee's commission looking into the attacks wanted to hear from her. This kind of intelligence commission is standard procedure after a major national security incident. As the interview approached, Colleen grew increasingly stressed and found herself unable to sleep. One night, she gave up trying. She got out of bed, went to her office, and started typing up everything she wanted to say in her interview. She vented her frustrations with every setback the office had faced. She wrote about how the Minneapolis office had been stymied at every turn by headquarters and its layers of labyrinth bureaucracy. She wrote specifically about Mike and the RFU office, whom she felt had undermined her team's case. By the time Colleen finished her notes, it was well into the next day, and she'd written 13 pages. Looking at them, she realized that she might as well turn them into a memo. A letter addressed to Director Mueller that she could also give to the senators at her interview. Just to be safe, as an afterthought, she added a line at the end requesting whistleblower protections, just in case anyone ever considered retaliating against her. She'd seen over the years that the Bureau didn't take kindly to those who damaged its reputation, intentionally or otherwise. A few days later, on May 21st, 2002, Colleen touched down in Washington, D.C. At her interview, she gave the staffers copies of her memo. Afterwards, she went by FBI headquarters and dropped a copy off at the director's office. Then, she walked over to the Senate office buildings and left copies at the offices of the two senior-most members of the Senate Intelligence Committee. The next day, Colleen was back at the Minneapolis office like nothing had happened. She wondered if anyone had actually read her memo. That evening, as she was wrapping up for the day, the phone rang. On the other end was a reporter from CNN. Apparently, someone from the Minneapolis FBI office had written a letter, and the reporter wanted to know if the office could provide insight. 
Colleen tried not to panic. She informed the reporter that she didn't know anything about it and hung up. Someone had read her letter. Maybe a lot of someone's. She hadn't expected it would get attention from somewhere like CNN, though. But the Senate Intelligence Committee's investigation into the September 11th attacks was big news. It was only a matter of time before the word would get out. When the news finally broke that Colleen was the memo's author, the FBI took the only recourse it could to protect itself. It classified the memo. This proved Colleen's worst fears about the Bureau's top brass. She believed they were more concerned about their reputations than fixing the bureaucratic issues that might have prevented the 9-11 attack in the first place. Shortly afterwards, the Senate Intelligence Committee asked her to come testify in a public hearing. Colleen was only too keen to oblige. In her testimony, she was a bit more measured than in her memo. She made it clear that she believed in the FBI. She simply wanted it to live up to its potential. Instead of placing blame, this time she identified three major issues that she believed caused the FBI's failure, at least regarding the Musawi case. If the Bureau was going to stop future attacks effectively, she felt these had to be addressed. First was the issue of careerism, which caused agents to be afraid to take risks that might hurt their jobs or reputations. Second, she called out the absurd layers of approvals at headquarters that were now required for any urgent decisions to be reached. In the Musawi case, for example, the warrant application never even made it to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or FISA court for a decision to be made either way. And finally, Colleen called out the endless, repetitive paperwork that slowed down decision-making and approvals. Colleen also addressed the need to balance the maintenance of civil liberties with the gathering of crucial intelligence in a timely manner. She claimed laws already existed to allow law enforcement agencies to gather information without breaching people's fundamental rights, and it would be crucial to ensure that such rights were not swept aside in the name of faster intelligence collection. She wrapped up her testimony by making it clear that the best way for both the government and the FBI to move forward was by telling the truth and being transparent. Without that, there could be no trust between the people and the government, and public safety would suffer. Colleen's testimony turned her into an instant celebrity. She didn't much like the attention, but her calls for truth and trust transformed her into a hero. In the months to come, she was all over primetime news programs and was even named a Person of the Year by Time magazine. The public seemed to love her vision for a reformed FBI. And Colleen was delighted when the Department of Justice ordered the Office of the Inspector General to conduct a detailed, no-holds-barred review of the FBI's failures in the lead-up to 9-11. But while the FBI did change in response to the attacks, it seemed that they had gone from one extreme to the other. The new Patriot Act solved the problem of excessive bureaucracy by essentially removing all barriers to surveillance warrants. 
It looked like the administration was using 9-11 to claim sweeping powers that some believed infringed upon civil rights. Colleen was disappointed to find that many of her colleagues, including some in the Minneapolis office, viewed her decision to speak out as a betrayal. As frustrated as they had been with headquarters, many of them still believed that problems should be handled internally. The fact that her face was now on the cover of magazines and she had become a minor celebrity only irritated them further. Even though she only used her platform to speak about reform and transparency, it looked to some of her FBI colleagues like she was raising her profile at the Bureau's expense. It wasn't until 2003, though, that Colleen's position became untenable. That winter, the Bush administration had been building its case for a war against Saddam Hussein in Iraq, using 911 and the plight of the Iraqi people as excuses, and they'd gotten U.S. public opinion behind them. Concerned, Colleen once again sat down and wrote a letter to Director Mueller. In it, she warned of the consequences of a war in Iraq. Based on what she'd learned from working with counterterrorism teams over the years, and especially in the wake of 9-11, she believed that a war would only inspire more Islamist extremist terror attacks. Already, the FBI was fighting to stay on top of the threats they were monitoring. She felt that if the U.S. attacked a predominantly Muslim country, it would be a huge recruiting tool for extremist groups like al-Qaeda. The FBI risked being overwhelmed. In other words, if the FBI truly cared about preventing terrorist attacks, it would not support the war in Iraq. This time, Colleen intended her letter to be public. And when she sent it to the director's office on the 5th of March, 2003, she also mailed it to the press. If her colleagues saw her previous letter as a betrayal, Colleen wasn't prepared for the reaction to her new letter. Like the rest of the country, the majority of the bureau had lined up behind the administration. By speaking out, Colleen made herself a pariah. Two weeks after her letter was published in the New York Times, the invasion went ahead, despite her protestations. A couple months later, she voluntarily took a demotion. And a year later, in 2004, when she turned 50 and was eligible to retire, she did. But her fight wasn't over. In the years to come, Colleen publicly advocated for ethics and civil liberties in government and investigations, and even ran unsuccessfully for Congress in Minnesota. To this day, she continues to write and give talks about ethics and transparency, especially relating to what she sees as the perpetual war on terror. As for Zacharias Musawi, his case took six years to reach a conclusion. Eventually, he was indicted on six felony charges, including conspiracy to commit acts of terrorism, conspiracy to use weapons of mass destruction, and conspiracy to murder United States employees. In 2005, Harry Samet took to the stand to testify against him. While the agent was less public than Colleen in his criticism of the FBI's systems, he used the opportunity to speak in detail about the barriers he faced while trying to sound the alarm to the danger he believed Musawi posed. 
Musawi narrowly missed receiving the death penalty. And on May 4th, 2006, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. As he left the courtroom, he reportedly clapped his hands and shouted out, America, you lost, I won. Harry Samet remained a special agent in the FBI for another 19 years until 2020. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies and the people who expose them. For more information on the FBI's investigation into Zacharias Musawi, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Time magazine article, Colleen Rowley, the Special Agent, by Amanda Ripley and Maggie Seeger, as well as the Office of the Inspector General's review of the FBI's handling of intelligence information prior to the September 11th attacks, extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original for ParCast, produced in partnership with Stable, executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, Becky Jacobs, and David McGuire, developed for podcast by Julian Boireau, written by Kate Thorman, produced by Alice Homewood, editorial support from Mike Jemson, mixed, mastered, and sound designed by Rowan Bishop for Stable, and hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez. (laughs) 